Namaste. So today we are going to take up Collected Works of Shirobindo, Volume 15, probably in two parts, The Secret of the Vedas. <clears throat> it's a monumental work and um, I think an indispensable work if you want to read into Shirobindo's writings. As you know, the writings on the Vedas occupy almost four or five volumes last time we spoke about it. Though these writings primarily, they were the ones in this volume are the ones which came out in the Arya and um, they came out from August 1915 to 17. That's probably one of them carried on till 18. So this is the, just for two and a half, three years, due to the war, Shirobindo had to discontinue. Lot of things he wanted to write more about the Rig Veda and uh, he could not because of the time and so many other works. One of the tasks of the avatar is to rescue the Vedas. That's how our Puranas describe. And why it is important? Because it's the foundation on which all else is built. And its importance we can understand today. Um, see, when we cut ourselves from the roots of our own civilization, then we become like free floaters where any kind of influence can easily enter and take us away from a stream of consciousness which the forefathers had let upon earth. Because these rishis were not ordinary people, that is for sure. Um, Mother confirms it, Shurabindo also speaks about it. They were involutionary beings and if you read through the Vedic lore, it's very evident that they were involutionary beings who were beings from higher planes of consciousness who came and started the human civilization in a way. And they chose India for, and we'll come to those nitty gritty subsequently, they chose India, Indian Peninsula to safeguard this teaching which subsequently over a period of time, a portion of it was kept and transmitted through an oral tradition uh, to the Vedic Rishis. So there was a civilization anterior to the Vedic Rishis, which the Vedas speak of as the forefathers. And they were the ones who were, the Rishis who received this knowledge through oral trans, you know, they transmitted it. It was left to Vedavyas of the Isles, Krishnadvayapayan, to later on compile many of these. He is a compiler who found these hymns, brought them together. Otherwise, it was mainly through oral tradition. So, oral tradition has its advantages, it has its disadvantages also, because it sometimes makes a particular kind of pronunciation and intonation fixed, depending upon who is pronouncing it. And a lot depends on the way the sounds are played upon. So, this one part. Now, over a period of time, as the Vedic lore Vedic lore is um, full of images which modern mind, why modern mind, even the time of the Upanishads, people could not easily connect. So what the Upanishads did, they took out the essence and brought it out as, uh, they, they agreed, they, they were very clear that they are drawing from the Vedas, but the main intuitions, the illuminations. So while this was, this made it very readable, to the intellectual mind, because you know we uh, find it very easy and convenient that okay, fine, there is the one divine presence in everything. But the disadvantage was that over a period of time, this intellectual statement or the illuminations they remained, and a lot of Vedic uh, uh, understanding of the cosmology, because Vedas are not only about these. Uh, spiritual experiences, but also how the spiritual experiences connected with the earth, with normal life, with everyday living. So they started getting lost or blurred. And that's when the secret of the Vedas started getting lost. A task which was further completed by the tendency towards otherworldliness. Because the moment you pick up the Upanishads, it's all about you know the divine presence. So there was a tendency to become otherworldly, which was completed first by Buddha, who completely broke away entire other ritualistic aspects of the Vedas. And uh, then of course Shankara, who in reaction to Buddha, but eventually ended up uh, stating the Vedantic formula of one without a second. So the secret of the Vedas was lost. Uh, 
and it was lost also because it was very difficult to recover it because like many of the ancient mysteries there was a whole age of mysteries illusion mysteries celtic mysteries druids still read about them it's very fascinating to read about these mysteries orphic mysteries in greece so for their own reason they they believed that these secrets must be conserved um they should not be given to the uninitiated because to give it to the uninitiated meant that it can be misused many of the vedic hymns they are asking for you know strength for forces for light for illumination and if um, certain forms of powers if they came to the uninitiated they can be very dangerous so they preserved it in a in a double layer of meaning or rather three layers of meaning so one was the the outer meaning which was uh, mostly Uh, as if they were speaking of natural images and that's how came the naturalistic interpretation of the veda they were when when it is said parjanya so it is the cloud god indra he is with the thunderbolt the lightning the god of lightning the rivers they are about the physical rivers the mountains the rocks so the cow the horses so it became a naturalistic interpretation of the veda that they were worshiping nature because they didn't quite understand um they were very primitive people so they, they they didn't quite understand anything deeper so this is how it was interpreted the naturalistic interpretation um which we'll see how shurbindo you know talks about them and even refutes them then there is the natu- the ritualistic interpretation ritualistic interpretation is uh, where swami dyanand saraswati we see particularly prominently he brought out that these rituals of the vedas are not just uh, about you know naturalistic things but there are gods whom they are invoking and all these gods are aspects of the one god so that was credit to him that he brought out this aspect and then you know the yagna how to do it so he once again brought back the ritualistic aspects of the vedas so out of vedas these two aspects started emerging two lines one was the ritualistic which was called as karmakand the brahmanas preserved the karmakand brahmanas not brahmanas <laughs> <laughs> brahmanas are a body of literature whereas the intellectual side uh, esoteric side was preserved by the upanishads but the vedas is a composite thing it is not ritualistic and um, intellectual statement they are a much more deeper profound spiritual experiences so when the recovery of the vedas started um, mainly in the indian in the european context is was the germans max muller and then there were indians also who started this uh, sayana even earlier prior to him there was a lexicon they used to use uh, yaksas uh, lexicon so the problem was that the language was had changed a lot like now when we use words in english we don't associate them with the latin roots we have like take a word like stand so stand means two things even now but stand also has a psychological connotation so stand is not just a physical structure like a stand on which you put things stand is also not about you know physically standing up but stand is also about psychologically standing up we do use this term that stand up for what you believe in so depending on the context but its original root is very often lost so this is what we find that they tried to recover but the language had undergone modifications the vedic rishis were using the language in a much more subtle and flexible way and it was in time when sanskrit was not yet fixed like fixed forms this means this this means that it was not in this way so the language carried within its a fluidity and therefore it could be interpreted at different layers so one was the physical interpretation physical images then there was the inner psychological interpretation as i said stand so stand as a physical element stand also as a psychological element and um, stand can also be seen in the deepest sense he who stands erect lofty climbing toward the sky so the same word can be seen at different levels but um, the modern interpreters didn't have either that body of experience that was missing completely and they relied on a lexicon which was very archaic which itself was faulty so shurbindo when he started interpreting as we were speaking last time shri krishna gave him the nirukta the grammar through which the vedas can be interpreted but the method shurbindo employed is something very interesting so he saw that when these interpreters were interpreting so what they were doing 
at one place they would apply a certain meaning and it fits very well at another place this meaning doesn't fit at all at a third place this meaning makes the whole words completely meaningless so for example dhenu so it refers to cow but actually it's also a fosterer nurturer dhenu one who gives um uh, plenty so because they were applying the outer meaning some places it was okay you know you could interpret it very outwardly but at other places it made the whole hymn a nonsensical thing so they interpreted that the vedic rishis were a mixed lot some of them were very barbaric and primitive <laughs> there were some who were little more illumined it seems so this is how the whole theory started that these hymns were very primitive in nature now it had deep implications one it meant that we were cut off from our own roots what more damage can be done and this was used as a means for political justification so we'll see how so one of the things they the vedas consistently speak about aryans and they speak about dasyus the word dravid comes much later and the word dravid actually means if you take there are several meanings but one of them is drav the water and with a land which is surrounded by water so this is how the the southern below the vindhyachal it does not refer only to tamils gujarat maharashtra everything is dravid if you go by that definition uh, my own feeling is the word is a very different meaning because vid stands for knowledge and dra what does that root mean so uh, but i am not going into it because i i don't claim to th- these are all illuminations so i i don't want to get into that but the word dravid comes much later so aryans had a god called indra and very often indra was shown as fighting and he would have his thunderbolt he would kill the das dasyus also known as dasas and uh, chase them into their lair and uh, the who were the aryans um, aryans were the blue eyed fair skin people now i don't know ever in the indian context anybody has seen any blue eyed boy except perhaps rithik roshan i don't know if there is any any more <laughs> but this is how the theory went as absurd as that that the aryans were those who migrated from iran and afghanistan and indra was their warlord that's how the aryan invasion theory came so what did indra do he ransacked the entire old time harappan civilization and they settled there uh, creating mass graves destroying them burning them by fire based on what evidence frankly no evidence for example um, <laughs> when they saw some uh, graves in harappan civilization so they said indra had killed them that's how it is there in the rigvedas that the aryans are invoking the indra for the battle indra is coming and is destroying these people mercilessly so it was indra who destroyed them so other people challenge this theory okay if he struck them with a thunderbolt there should be some injury and these dead uh, people are on different layers it's not like they are all together he came and ransacked the city then the ransacking of indra was based on an evidence as flimsy as finding some broken statues in uh, mohenjodaro now broken statues even mahabalipuram you go south anywhere you have archaeological in, you know excavations you will find broken statues there is nothing special about finding some broken statues uh, in mohenjodaro and then a description of the aryans and dravidians which is not you cannot understand it through physiognomy the aryans were the people who were blue eyed fair skinned who came all the way from persia iran and afghanistan and dravidians were dark skinned people with a flat nose where do you find that i mean honestly frankly <laughs> shobindo takes a dig at it he says the south indian nose proboscis is as uh, good as a north indian proboscis which is a fact if you just look at the uh, noses it's not like there is a chapta nose the only people you can know is you know i don't want to name but far north in the chinese you don't find a flat nose so it was based on things which are not even there in the vedas then the evidence was based on that you know and entire they found that the old civilization was uh, destroyed uh, possibly by fire and it was again indra was the culprit who sent fire agni 
and what did agni do he agni was another war lord <laughs> he burned them out now when you burn people completely at least some uh, skull will be found some house is ransacked nothing there is no evidence what is the evidence evidence is that there are layers of ashes now what are these ashes nobody has examined in some places they found some layers of ashes which was a practice of burying a city you know shubindu speaks about that that in ancient time they felt that more than 300 years a city becomes unlivable so people used to actually um, raise it and put a whole layer of ash they had their own reason for it now these ashes don't contain any human remnant and yet agni now is to be blamed for all the destruction all flimsy evidence then there are evidence that they were the so called evidences that they were coming on horses invaders aryan invaders and the evidence is that there are places where you find graves of horses and their riders buried there are only two horses with invaders buried ever found but now what happens one person starts a theory and people quote it and re-quote it so they have cited recited so much so that people have come to believe it like if you tell a lie 100 times and people perpetuate the lie it becomes a truth now this is how the entire myth of aryan invasion was propagated there are many other aspects of it what was the purpose of this myth very simply number 1 to justify the britishers loved this myth because they said look here we are not the invaders you guys are the invaders you came in and pushed the native people away so we came and pushed you away need justification you see that you did something we have also done the same thing and we are also ultimately like many you know hitler that we are from the same stock so what's the big deal let me come there i am also an aryan you are aryan so it was done initially for purely justifying invasions that aryans were never the original inhabitants of the land and they just were invaders who settled down destroyed the entire what was so called the dravidian culture who were the original settlers of the land or pushed them southward and therefore we are also invading we are not doing anything wrong so this was one aspect of the theory then subsequently in india this theory has been kept alive for a very different purpose to create the north south divide so you see some of the southern states politically it, it will become a big issue that you know we are dravids not most people don't even know the meaning of the word dravid and is it there really in the vedas vedic literature or not the word actually is dasyus dasas and they have been collated why because they are called as dark so these now what the darknesses we'll see so there was a reason why this has been perpetuated and i am not going into these details because we are right now focusing on the book and what shurabindu has to speak about it but neither the rigvedic hymns nor acha there was another story about the aryan invasion which uh, was very important one was about the saraswati river so aryans speak about saraswati river you know the civilization was around saraswati so whole thing was very saraswati there is no saraswati river so interestingly before the aryan invasion theory there were indologists who said the ghagar uh, khakra river that is the lost river saraswati and they had reasons to believe it but uh, it was completely ignored and it came to be believed that the saraswati river was somewhere in towards high afghanistan or persia and they speak about it then people have spoken that the vedas speak about crossing rivers and moving from plains through narrow passages into other places therefore they were invaders they were just documenting history the entire vedic literature there is not a single reference to crossing of rivers so so there is a reference to rivers descending into human consciousness but there is no reference to crossing of rivers so all these were perpetuated partly by ignorance partly by clear vested interest partly by you know so called historians who had certain political leanings ideologies and now it has so deeply got entrenched into the human psyche indian psyche that uh, we are cut off from the roots so anything we uh, you know uh, except you know after all we are belong to the same stock as the european culture there was never any you know this was the whole deep rooted conspiracy so shubindu is one of them who right in 1914 challenged this view 
and he says that my interest in the vedas came up after coming to tamil nadu that time it was not tamil nadu and seeing the tamil people so he says i um, i had uh, known about this theory but when i saw the tamil people i recognized them many of my friends from the northern side western side and i wondered and he said not only among the brahmins like you know who are supposed to be fair skin later on this theory came up the brahmins were the one who came from the other culture and they are the ones who invaded aryans became equivalent to brahmins so he says that you know there was i could easily recognize that this person is like that this person and like that and there's that's where he speaks about the flat nose and the big nose and all these things the dark skin and the multicolored skin and the fair skin and then he says the second aspect was that he was not able to see the link between certain languages he says only when i read tamil languages language that i discovered the missing roots between sanskrit and latin so it was like there were roots in tamil languages language which is of course well known it's if there is a language equivalent as ancient as sanskrit is tamil so one could he could see that there is a connectivity connection of languages and through tamil you could you know recognize the roots um, connecting latin and uh, sanskrit that last talk we have spoken about it and he has written in a great length about it then he started taking interest into the vedas that what is there and then he discovered that his own experiences that he was having spiritually he could find in the vedas for the first time otherwise shrubindo um, felt that these are experiences which are having which nobody else uh, speaks about and probably you know there is no real explanation to these and he has to find it all himself and then he saw in the vedas a complete document of these experiences and then when he studied from that angle he saw that if you apply the inner meaning to a term whether it be agni whether it be indra whether it be go kau or ashwa you see a consistent meaning throughout which is the same but if you apply the naturalistic interpretation that agni means the physical fire then some places it will apply at other places you have to stretch it a lot at still in the places it will be completely absurd and i think last time i had given this example for example he says that you know indra's steeds which are dripping with butter so he says when he saw that word gritam what does it mean in the offering so if you see the vedas you have these five six aspects in the vedas one is that there is the uh, yagya the sacrifice it's it's one of the main things whenever you think about veda you think about sacrifice and then there is the purohit who is doing the sacrifice then there are the gods who are invoked and then there is the mantra through which the gods are invoked and then there are the fruits of the sacrifice these are basically five elements of the vedic lore so uh, one of the hymns speaks about sacrificing gritam now according to the ancient meaning if one applied that lexicon which max miller and others have used gritam would mean literally you know this butter which you ghee which you are putting into it so it goes very well you put ghee into fire and fire flares up but there are other places where gritam word comes into gritashno the horses which are dripping with ghee now it appears very absurd that what kind of people were they that they were making the horses drip into ghee and then making them put into fire so it became absurd but if you apply the meaning of gritam to a illumined mentality to the mind and the thought because gritam means clarified butter so anything which is clarified intelligence uh, that becomes gritam so then it applies consistently so wherever you are putting gritam into the fire and you take the fire as the fire of aspiration so what 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 is the rishi doing he is using his mind thought powers to offer into the fire of sacrifice and what is that fire it is representing the divine will so when you start looking at it so he is offering it into the fire and as a result his mind the the mentality the thoughts they are uh, being blessed by indra they are becoming more and more luminous till they become ninefold or tenfold and that also is very interesting so ninefold thought was thoughts which reach right up to the home of indra the 10th thought it's very interesting there were two kinds of rishis the navagavas and the dasagavas so the navagavas were thoughts which take you layer by layer 
and take you to the home of Indra. How? By offering. Meaning thereby that um, don't just be very happy with a scholarly understanding of things. Keep offering till you get at the right truth. So thought is a means for ascension to truth. That's how Shubhinda has a very beautiful poem, Thought the Paraclete, the bird, which you know communicates between the higher and the lower worlds. But what was the Dasgava? Dasgava was that power which worked with Intra and entered into the caves of the Panis. So <laughs> these thoughts were the ones who were the Navgavas. Thought went to a point where there was perfect discernment and it helped Indra to say, there is the cave of the Panis. But the tenth one was that which entered into the caves and helped Indra release the cows. So then um, Shurabindu gives a very interesting uh, and he applies it through a number of hymns. He says, you will consistently find the same meaning. So I'll just take some of these uh, you know, examples from the writings. So who were these gods, Indra and others? And who were these Dasyus, the Aryan, the Aryan gods, Indra? And the god of the Dasyus, the, the demons, Vritras, Valas, Panis, who were these people? So, Shubindo says, the gods I found to be described as children of light, sons of Aditi. And as we know, Dyu, Dyu is light and Aditi is undivided consciousness. So, if you go into the Puranic legends, so gods are described as children of Aditi, Aditi. So, undivided. There is no division. There is oneness. And Diti, the demons. Who are the Ditis? Who is Diti? The divided consciousness. So, that which divides are the Dasyus, the Diti. So what do they divide? Now, when we take to Shurabindra and the Mother's Yuga, the final division they have created is between world and God. That's how you find in Savitri, that he, the Mother says, Savitri says that you have created the gulf between world and God. There is no real division because it's the divine who is manifested in, in this world. So in the Vedas, they are trying to bridge this gulf. And the children of light are thrusting themselves into the battlefield against the forces of darkness so that the gulf can be bridged and heaven and earth can become equal and one. So this is the divine marriage that they are speaking about. The gods I found to be described as children of light, sons of Aditi, of infinity. And without exception, they are described as increasing man. So wherever you see the gods, so uh, they are actually making... Um, our wealth increase. They are increasing man. They are giving plenitude. Uh, Mother would say that when you truly surrender to the divine, it does not diminish you. Actually, it aggrandizes you. Because all our human capacities are very limited. They are raised to the power of infinity. <laughs> whatever is worth raising. Of course, the darkness will go away. But whatever is worth raising when we offer it is raised to the power of infinity. The abundance of heaven Increasing the truth in him, building up the divine worlds, leading him against all attacks to the great goal, the integral felicity, the perfect bliss. So these are the actions of the gods. They want to take man to a state of perfect happiness and perfect bliss. Now we must understand the gods of the Vedas and the gods of the Puranas, they have undergone a change. The Indras of the Indra of the Puranas is different. So this was the another problem which took place that the Puranic legions tried to draw from the Vedas but uh, in trying to perhaps oversimplify, again they lost the Vedic truths. So this was the uh, big difficulty. Increasing their separate functions immersed by means of their activities, their epithets, the psychological sense of the legions connected with them, the indications of the Upanishads and Puranas, the occasional side lights from the Greek myth. So here he brings the myth of Saraswati. So where is Saraswati? Now modern archaeological evidence confirms the um, intuition of the Hindi, Hindu um, or the Indian age. They were Hindus, I mean in that sense, who said that the river Saraswati is near Ghagar Khakra and it flowed through Rajasthan. Now if you have this evidence, then... 3,700 years back already they were settlers. So where was the fight which took place? Saraswati was not somewhere in Iran or Persia. So modern archaeological evidence as well as the satellite evidence confirms the presence of river Saraswati. Shubindu goes one step further. He says Saraswati consistently applies 
to the psychological power of inspiration. So wherever you have the Saraswati river, be the two consorts, Hila and Mahi. Mahi is also known as Bharati. Mahi is about vastness. So Saraswati is about inspiration. And Ila is about that intuitive illumination. So constantly and Sarma. Sarma is intuition and Ila is about illumination. So wherever you see these rivers, consistently in the Vedas, they invariably, if you take it, that the meaning is not just physical river. If you apply physical river, you will see some places it makes sense, other places it, it is nonsense. But if one applies the sense of inspiration to Saraswati, then everywhere it falls Perfect and correct. So much so that there is a place, there is a whole legend where Saraswati is described as one who fights and destroys the enemies. Now we don't associate Saraswati with this. So what were the enemies she was destroying? By the power of the word, by inspiration, by illumination, she was destroying the enemies. Which is all about darkness and things which prevent us from uh, reaching the divine truth. Then there is another, he speaks about Greek myth. There is a very interesting Greek myth. And the Greek myth also describes a horse who breaks the rock. The horse is Pegasus. And with his foot, he breaks a rock. And releases the river Hippocrene. <laughs> Hippocrene, if you read through the description, is all about... Uh, similar to river Saraswati Hippocrene is the muse Later on she assumes a psychological function So she becomes the muse And the poets would pray to her To uh, have the inspiration And this god Ashwa uh, Pegasus uh, Very interestingly breaks the rock And releases the waters And Shubhinda says the name is Pegasus And if you take with a slight difference In Sanskrit The word Pajasa Again it refers to the waters so there was such a um, kind of experience which was going on in, in those times which have been lost. On the other hand, the demons who opposed them, which were supposed to be the Dravidian with the Dravidian gods, are all powers of division and limitation. So what do they do? They don't let the thought expand towards infinity. So they will limit, they will divide material world. And spiritual world. Perhaps there is no spiritual world. There is only material world. So this is the action of the demonic forces. which don't want us to expand into unlimited horizons. And then there are other things also that the demons try. They try to get that truth but by force. That's what we see in Ahana. They want, there is a very interesting story, legend of um, Sarma, Indra and the Panis who are hiding inside the cave, inside the ocean. So Sarma goes and tells them that, look, you know, you come out and you surrender yourself to Indra. But they say, but uh, Sarma, we have an offer to you. If you come and live here, we will give you a lot of riches. So <laughs> you leave Indra. So she says, you don't know Indra. Indra will come and he will devour you all. He will break open these caves and he is going to finish you all. And they say, no, 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 we, why don't you go and convey to Indra also that if he comes and stays with us, he can be the king, but we will give him a lot of riches. So what is the Pani's trying? They want to reduce truth into the little formula, narrow little scope. The same truth, the same power they want to reduce into very narrow, little understanding, little dogma. And use it for their own purposes. That's how dogmatic religions followed by fanaticism and fundamentalisms are created. So they are powers of division and limitation, coverers. So what do they do? They cover the truth. So even when it is there, one doesn't see it. Now, you know, when we understand it, all of us are engaged in Shubhinda Yoga. We will see very clearly that what are the forces that don't let us see the truth even when it is staring in the eye. Tearers. So you have received some illumination and they tear it apart. So one begins to doubt it after a while that whether it was true or not. Devourers. After some time it seems to vanish. Where has it gone? Confiners. They will not allow you to progress further. Dualizers. Obstructors. As their names indicate. Powers that work against the free and unified integrality of the being. The divine wants us uh, in our integrality, in our totality to experience the fullness of the truth of light of 
the divine wideness, bliss, love, peace, everything. But they don't. They will limit. There are places where they will completely confine. They will obstruct. These vritras, panis, panis, not panis, panis, <laughs> atris, rakshasas, sambara, vala, namuchi, are not Dravidian kings and gods as the modern mind with its exaggerated historic sense would like them to be. They represent a more antique idea better suited to the religious and ethical preoccupation of our forefathers. So they were more interested in that inner conquest. How to grow in light, how to grow in wisdom, how to grow in truth, how to grow in love, how to grow in bliss, felicity, how to grow in power, how to grow in peace. This was their preoccupation. And they found there were powers which were obstructing. So Indra, the god of the higher worlds, he was invoked to destroy them. They represent the struggle between the powers of the higher good and the lower desire. Now it is so evident to anybody engaged in yoga, it is very evident that there is the struggle between the greater good Shreyas and the lesser seeking, running after pleasure, the prayas. So what do pleasure do? What does pleasure does? It robs and steals us of the felicity. It turns, you see, this is an experience which uh, I'm sure everybody engaged in yoga has, that there are times when you do experience that joy, that subtle felicity of the soul, that greater delight. And then one will experience the attack from the lower forces, which want to drag you into the realm of pleasure. And if you get dragged, you lose it. And then you realize that, oh my God, why is that consciousness veiled? Why is it concealed? So you want to get it back. So this is the struggle which is shown in the Vedas. Obviously, a typical either a historian um, or a philologist will not understand this struggle. Because he doesn't know such a struggle exists. He doesn't, has not even tried experience it. See, an average man, how does he live? He lives according to certain standards of the society. He doesn't experience the struggle inside him. It is only when you try to evolve that you experience the struggle. So only a man who is either practicing at least a high ethical life or still higher, better a spiritual life can truly understand the struggle inside. So they could not understand because for them there was no struggle. So what were the Vedas speaking about? Certainly not gods and demons, but about a group of people who had these gods and another group who had these other gods, but these gods were demonized. By the conquerors. So conquerors were the Aryans. So they demonized these gods. They called Vala, Pani, Nimuchi, Namuchi as uh, demons. But actually they were gods of the Dravidian. Now Shurabindu is completely debunking that theory on philological and psychological grounds. Both. Philological because he has seen the consistent use of that term. Meaning the same thing consistently. And on psychological ground because it applies to the psychological truth when we practice to yoga. And this conception of the Rig Veda and the same opposition of good and evil otherwise expressed with less psychological subtlety, with more ethical directness in the scriptures of the Zoroastrians, our ancient neighbors and kindred preceded probably from a common original discipline of the Aryan culture. So here he comes to that. Uh, was there an invasion? No. Was there a migration? Possibly. And he speaks about the Arctic theory of uh, um, you know, Mr. Tilak, that uh, probably they spoke about months of darkness, which is a physical image as well as a psychological image. So the Vedic rishis freely use these images. But how did they get the image of months of darkness? Well, they may have lived in a um, the Arctic um, zone. Then when they migrated, the common stock. So where did they go? They went partly to the western side and partly down they came. And much, much before one could talk even about any invasion, they were civilizing. This was a time when migration was taking place all over the world. So we must distinguish between Aryan migration and Aryan invasion. Invasion means there was a fight, a terrible fight. Now again, Shurabindu says there may be people fighting. Tribes used to fight. But it's not about Aryan-Dravidian fight which was taking place on a massive scale where the Aryans invaded, occupied forcibly, 
killing the Dravidian or pushing them back. Tribes used to fight, even small little tribes. At the same time, uh, even if there were some small fights among the tribes, this has nothing to do with the Rig Veda and the Vedic lore. Vedic lore is about the inner struggle between the powers and of the light and the darkness. And this was known to the ancient forefathers who carried something of that. That's why in Russian language you find some of the roots. Agun, Agni and many others, I think one of the talks we were speaking about it. So the common stock went here, went down. So Zoroastrians speak about Tohar Mazda where there is powers of light, powers of darkness, which is there in ancient culture. So it's not that from there we migrated here. It's a common stock from which we came and down we went. So this is uh, our ancient neighbors and kindred proceeded probably from a common original discipline of the Aryan culture. Now this Aryan myth has also been debunked by genetic studies. Though again people are trying to do... Now you see genetic studies have a um, problem. I must say that. Because when you, when you study DNA, you are expecting that everybody will have the same DNA. It is naive to imagine that. There is no way you can do that because there is so much intermixing of people. The Arabian blood is mixed here. The British blood is mixed here. The French blood is mixed here. And of course, over a period of time, genes do undergo changes and mutation. And yet, there is fair enough of evidence of a common, you know, genetic ancestry, common stock. But you cannot have an absolute, uh, you know, stock which is completely all the genes are matching. This is not possible. Uh, even within families... You don't see the genes matching. There is a genetic variation which takes place over a period of time. Uh, and yet, genetic studies definitely, one thing they re reveal, that there are no, not two different stocks of people, but largely one stock of people which do show a certain degree of variation which is bound to be there. So this also people try to counter and that counter is not a big issue that either the Aryans who invaded were very small group and uh, they were ultimately they mingled with the locals but the problem with this theory is if there is such a small group and mingled with a large group of people how could they impose their culture and their thought and everything on, on a much larger group of people so this is the counter the other is they were large group of people which is fantastic that you know Locals were so small, they were a large group of people who mingled with the population and they have become one. Which is fair enough, it doesn't matter if they migrated and became one with the population. It's not about invasion, there is no real battle or struggle, there is no evidence of that. That's the important point because based on that, the entire Vedic understanding um, has been erected. Then he gives another uh, very interesting example. The sea of the superconscient is the goal of the reverse of clarity of the honeyed wave, Soma. As the sea of the subconscient in the heart within is their place of rising. This upper sea is spoken of <coughs> as the Sindhu. A word which may mean either a river or ocean. But in this hymn it clearly means ocean. So now you see how the word even Hindu came. Sindhu, the upper superconscient light towards which one is going. Let us observe the remarkable language in which Vamdev speaks of these rivers of the clarity. He says first that the gods sought and found the clarity, the Gritam, triply placed and hidden by the panis in the cow, Gavi. It is beyond doubt that Go is used in the Veda in the double sense of cow and light. So in one way you can say yes, hidden in the cow is the Gritam, which you know they found. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, what a great discovery one must say. <laughs> they found some means by which, you know, like today you have how to extract ghee out of it. But see, it is such a clear image, even Sri Ramakrishna who speaks about it, that if you have only water and if you, uh, you know, churn it, uh, no grit, grit, no ghee will come out of it. No makhan will come out. It's only if there is milk you can churn it and bring out makhan. So it's a very clear image and a symbol. He says first that the gods sought and found the clarity. It is beyond doubt that Go is used in the Veda in the double sense of cow and light. The cow is the outer symbol, the inner meaning is the light. The figure of the cow stolen and hidden by the panis is constant in the Veda. 
Here it is evident that as the sea is a psychological symbol, the heart ocean, samudra hridi, and the soma is a psychological symbol, and the clarified butter is a psychological symbol, the cow in which the gods find the clarified butter hidden by the panis must also symbolize an inner illumination and not physical light. So the word go from which Gopal, Golo, Gomati, all Gupta, they all come from the same root, which is essentially light. The cow is really Aditi, the infinite consciousness hidden in the subconscious. So she has to be released. And the triple Ghritam is the triple clarity of the liberated sensation finding its secret of delight, of the thought mind attaining to the light and intuition and of the truth itself, the ultimate supramental vision. So all this handi torna on, you know, Krishna Janmashtami and breaking, getting the makkhan from there. Well, as a symbol, it's high up. So you have to, it's a collective effort. So people come together, join and then they break and receive it. But it should not be like, this is the thing, real thing. The real thing is the symbol, where the collective effort of humanity eventually reaches that point where you can receive that uh, luminous mentality and then you share it with everyone. So this is how it means. This is clear from the second half of the verse. So he speaks about these verses. We may observe also in passing that the Panis here must perforce be spiritual enemies. And everybody speaks about the Shadripo, even in like modern mystic lore. The six Ripos which are Kamakrodh, Lobo, Mohammad, Matsar. So why are they Ripos? Fear, Mother adds to this list. So why are they Ripos? Because they uh, devote the light. They don't allow us to advance. For instance, fear is a Ripu. Why is it an enemy of the light? Because it won't allow you to have faith. Doubt is a Ripu. It is an enemy. Why? Because it doesn't allow us to have faith which is the primary condition for the illumination and any advance. Uh, why is Kama and Krodha repose? Why? Because they destroy, they eat away. Beautiful peace one was having when one sat at the Samadhi. And one comes out and there is somebody who makes a remark and there is the Ripu, the enemy, the Vritras, the Wali, Walas. He is waiting around the corner. Particularly the gather. You know there was a time when you came out of the ashram, you saw a number of beggars seated there. Remember that time? Some of you may not remember. So they would, you know, be just uh, wanting some money and this, that. It became a big nuisance value. Well, you may be knowing about it. And then they had to be removed ultimately because it became like any other temple ground. So just as we step out, there are these walas, there are panis, there are vritras which are waiting. And you come out with a nice peaceful state. And somebody says, hey, you know, you have a problem. And suddenly they attack and the anger rises up. So why? What is this anger? It's an attack of these forces. And what did it do? It disturbed your peace. And it is so common around the darshan time. So when you practice this, you know it. You have it 10 times and 11 times you are careful. That look here, these are the fellows who are going to destroy your peace. So you don't, you, we may not use the word panis and vrittas, question of term. But when we read in the Vedas that this is the fight, you say, yeah, 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 we, we, we have experienced this battle several times. So this is how they act. Certainly, ah, okay. And so we must perforce the spiritual enemies, powers of darkness and not Dravidian gods or Dravidian tribes or Dravidian merchants. In the next verse, Vamdev says of the streams of the Gritam that they move from the heart ocean shut up in a hundred prisons by the enemy so that they are not seen. So they are all there in the heart of man. But they are hidden. So we can't see, we can't feel them. Certainly, this does not mean that rivers of ghee or of water, either rising from the heart ocean or any ocean, were caught on their way by the wicked and unconsolable Dravidians and shut up in a hundred pence so that the Aryans or the Aryan gods could not even catch a glimpse of them. Such an absurdity. But this is how they have interpreted it. That rivers arising out of the ocean, just imagine. And what river? Rivers of ghee. Where Suddenly, there were Dravidian gods who shut them so that the Aryans don't get at them. Why? Because they are rivers of ghee. 
Now just imagine the absurdity of it. And this is the kind of thing went around in the name of that. Naturally people declared there is no um, secret of the Vedas. But the beautiful thing is, despite all these efforts, the Vedas have endured. That's, you know, the time passes the final verdict. Till date people are fascinated by the Vedas and they have endured. In spite of all these misinterpretation and nonsensical interpretation and interpretation with vested interest. Or the Aryan gods could not even catch a glimpse of them. We perceive at once that the enemy, Pani Vritra of the hymn is a purely psychological conception and not an attempt of our forefathers to conceal the facts of early Indian history from their posterity in a cloud of tangled and inextricable myths. So this was another fantastic theory that why some of the hymns are so meaningful, why some nonsensical. So they said, you see, the conquerors wrote the history. So they concealed it in such a way. Now, such an absurd way that even you can't discover what it meant. <laughs> so, Darishi Vamdev would have stood aghast at such an unforeseen travesty of his ritual images. We have not even helped. If we take Ghrita in the sense of water, Hirde Samundra in the sense of a delightful lake, and suppose that the Dravidians enclose the water of the rivers with a hundred dams so that the Aryans could not even get a glimpse of them. For even if the rivers of Punjab all flow out of one heart-pleasing lake, yet their streams of water cannot even so have been triply placed in a cow and the cow hidden in a cave by the cleverest and most inventive Dravidians. So, you know, <laughs> with the most... <laughs> and Shravinda is a master, both, of course, he's a yogi of yogis, but philologically. So obviously, we are not going into all the details, but uh, it's amazing when we read all this. The seven rivers, the Veda speaks consistently of the waters or the rivers, especially of the divine waters. Apo Devihi or Apo Divyaha and occasionally of the waters which carry in them the light of the luminous solar world or the light of the sun. The passage of the waters affected by the gods or by man with the aid of the gods is a constant symbol. The three great conquests to which the human being aspires, which the gods are in constant battle with the Vritras and Panis to give to man are the herds. What they want to give to man? Herds. What herds? Herds of uh, cows and herds of horses and herds of cattle, the riches. So riches, these are not about outer riches, they are about inner riches. And these cows are the illuminations, the Ashwa are the power. So this is what they are constantly wanting to give to man. The waters, the power of inspiration, illumination, the free flowing of the truth is the waters here. And the sun or the solar world. The question is whether these references are to the rains of heaven, the rivers of northern India possessed or assailed by the Dravidians, the Vritras being sometimes the Dravidians and sometimes their gods. The herds possessed or robbed from the Aryan settlers by the indigenous robbers, the Panis who hold or steal the herds, being again sometimes the Dravidians and sometimes their gods. Or is there a deeper a spiritual meaning? Now, I personally feel that why these uh, historians saw it like that? Because we see in this world a reflection of our own images. Invaders would see nothing else but invaders. It is only a yogi who will see yoga everywhere. As the mother said, I see even cats and dogs doing yoga. But they were seeing invaders everywhere. But it doesn't stop here. It's worth, we'll read this and then stop. Is the winning of swar, is the winning of swar simply the recovery of the sun from its shadowing by the storm cloud? Or its seizure by eclipse or its concealment by the darkness of night, winning of swar, so the rays of the sun. So they applied this logic that the clouds and they were praying to Indra with this thunderbolt to destroy the cloud. Sun comes out again. They were so scared of natural phenomena like eclipse. So they used to pray like that. But this meaning may apply to one or two verses. But it won't apply consistently. So this is what Sri is telling us. For here at least there can be no withholding of the sun from the Aryans by human black-skinned and noseless enemies. The Dravidians were as if blocking the sun. They had some tremendous technology. 
to block the sun and the aryans were praying and calling indra release the sun the light of the sun these fellows noseless creatures have come and blocked imagine so or does the conquest of swar means simply the winning of heaven by sacrifice and in either case what is the sense of the curious collocation of cows waters and the sun or cows waters and the sky is it not rather a system of symbolic meaning in which the herds indicated by the word gah in the sense both of cows and rays of light are the illuminations from the higher consciousness which have their origin in the sun of light and then he says there are plenty of passages uh, which can be which clearly reveal this and uh, let me just see one last little ha huh. the sons of darkness we have seen not only but repeatedly that it is impossible to read into the story of the angiras indra and the sarma which we are talking about the cave of the panis and the conquest of the dawn the sun and the cows an account of a political and military struggle between aryan dravidian aryan invaders and dravidian cave dwellers that they were dwelling in the cave and the aryans came and they wanted to get their cows so they sent a spy sarma she went there and told them you better give your cows to these aryan invaders and the dravidians said no no we'll make a pact you come and live harmoniously and peacefully with us and sarma said no you don't know our lord indra he'll come and smash your caves and since they refused the aryan invaders were so brutal they came smash the caves and when the dasyus were released they even killed them and stole their cows back now this is so absurd you know if you look at it so what are these cows they are powers of light which have been held back in the subconscious where does all these experiences we have luminous where do they go they it enters into the subconscious terrain so what does the higher consciousness do it comes and breaks open these caves and then all these lovely wonderful things which were hidden inside get released and start coming into the surface consciousness still impure because they are mixed with the dasyus who are running helter skelter so they have to be destroyed by the forces of the higher consciousness indra is their leader agni is also their leader so what is agni the purifying flame of the divine will agni consistently is the divine will so when we surrender them to the divine will what does she do for us very simply the mother and what does she do she destroys the dasyus and releases the cows the light the powers the capacities which are hidden within us and of which we are totally unaware so when we look at it this way the dasyus are the haters of the sacred word they are those who give not to the gods the gift or the holy wine who keep their wealth of cows and horses and other treasure for themselves and do not give them to the seers there are those who do not do the sacrifice so it is very clear up now you know when we look at these dasyus they can have human representatives there are human haters of light who obstruct the light but they have nothing to do with dravidian or a region they are everywhere most of these historians who have topsy turvied the myth of uh, you know they have created the myth of aryan invasion you see they are belonging to the northern stock and further up so the dasyus have nothing to do with the historical region or geographical region though there may be human representative of dasyus hitler was very clearly a dasyu who was trying to take the world back thousands of years and finally but it is perfectly certain okay the spiritual wealth the spiritual battle the spiritual sacrifice and journey but it is perfectly certain that it then rigveda at least it is the spiritual conflict and victory not the physical battle and plunder which they are speaking so they are beautiful passages and you know we could just go on reading but i'll close with one last one still since the whole struggle is between the light and the darkness the truth and the falsehood the divine maya and the undivine all the dasyus alike are here identified with the darkness so that's how dasyus dasas that's how the word came and it is by the birth and shining of agni that the light is created with which he slays the dasyus and the darkness so first thing what does agni do it shows us where all things are hiding so before the flame of aspiration is woken up we are the good guys 
and everybody else around is the bad guy. When the flame shines up, it says, hold on, what you are seeing outside is within you. And then you increase the flame, then what happens? It's not just light, it becomes heat, tapas. Still increase it, becomes tejas. Then this very tejas starts destroying the darkness within. It is by the birth and shining of Agni that the light is created with which he slays the dasyus and the darkness. And Shubindu, same thing, made it so simple and direct. What is important is persistent aspiration, lighting up the fire of aspiration. It is this Agni which shows us where these fellows are hiding. Otherwise, the mind will, mind governed by the Vritras, it will give thousand justification, coverers. It will say, no, after all, it is a very human, innocent thing, anger, it's very natural. So the mind, these are the coverers acting through the mind. They will not show us. They will say the fault is outside you. This is what they are doing. The historical interpretation will not do at all here. Though the naturalistic may pass if we isolate the passage and suppose the lighting of the sacrificial fire to be the cause of the daily sunrise. But we have to judge from a comparative study of the Vedas and not on the strength of isolated passages. As I said, this is a vast and very exhaustive. Uh, there are so many passages which are so wonderful. And the whole purpose is that we go back and read the secret of the Vedas. <laughs> so as I said, this was along with the synthesis of the, the yoga, which I received in the morning, the secret of the Vedas, same day I received in the evening. And while synthesis of yoga made my heart jump that I have found this ultimate truth. But with secret of the Vedas, as I started reading, it was like, to use a Punjabi expression, Valle Balle. I said, my God, this is what it means, this is what it means, the cow means this, it's not about rituals. Because every day I grew up in a culture where morning you are giving a roti to the cow. And why is a very beautiful practice. But why turn it into a religion? Why, you know, this I could never understand. Why to the cow you give a roti in the morning? But when I said, oh, cow means light, then it made sense. That all that I put inside me, I must offer to the light. So that the illumination can grow into me. And then the whole ritual of fire sacrifice. Because we grew up in that culture, you know, that you light up the flame and all these things. So you realize that the sacrifice is inside. The fire is inside. The wealth and the plenitude are inside. The struggle is inside. And the victory is inside. Thank you.